Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sask Egg Today is brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Future Ford is your automotive expert. From sales to service, they're the ones you can trust to get you rolling again sooner. Sask Egg Today with Rod McDonald. Hey, good afternoon again, everyone. It's uh, 16 after 12, after 1 in Manitoba, and back for one final kick at the can here today. And then I will make way once again for Doug Falconer, who will return from holidays on Monday. Coming up on the program here today, we get our weekly um, bug update. I spoke with John Gavlosky. He's uh, Manitoba Agriculture's chief entomologist about what sort of bugs were bugging Manitoba farmers this past week. And um, so we'll hear from that coming up on the program here today. As well, Environmental Stewardship Award, also known as TESA, will be presented next week uh, at the Canadian Cattlemen's Association gathering in Calgary. There are seven nominees that have been selected from all regions of the country. And over the next, well, few days here on uh, SaskAg today, we'll preview each of those nominees from the uh, Western Canada, some from the East that we uh, won't do a special preview on, but those from the West, from BC, um, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta, we certainly will, so listen for that. We'll get a bit of an overview and hear from uh, the three Western participants taking part in that coming up on the program today as well. Those stories and a whole lot more ahead on Sask Ag Today. First, though, it's time for the Agriculture Weather Outlook. It's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers bio meal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. And Sean Prehika, your Remax Blue Chip Ag Division Specialist. We have the Beef and Forage Report coming up next. I had a nice uh, conversation this morning with Mark Verslice. He's with Corteva AgriScience. We're talking about uh, Canada thistle uh, problem weed, certainly for forage growers specifically, but also uh, it is um, an issue for the forestry industry as well. It causes about $7.5 billion in lost revenue annually between agriculture and forestry so we'll hear from mark verslice from corteva agriscience coming up on the beef and forage report but before we get to that there's no shortage of information about food and food production on the internet but how much of it is accurate and based on science rather than based on fear timothy caulfield is a professor of law at the university of alberta and the current canada research chair in health law and policy he was a recent guest on the ask a farmer podcast produced by canadian food focus this is part of caulfield's conversation with host clinton monchuk a farmer from the lanigan area and the executive director of farm and food care saskatchewan we have access to all this information now to all these these studies but research does tell us that people do feel confused about, you know, what they're supposed to eat, what they should be doing to live a healthy lifestyle, which is frustrating because we know the basics. You know, we've known the basics for a long time. 
there's lots going on. Part of it is social media. It's going to be no surprise, right? No surprise. It, part of it is social media. And we have good evidence that social media is pushing a lot of the misinformation about food, but, but other things too. So, you know, that's part of the story because you create these echo chambers where, where misinformation just thrives, whether it's about GMOs or the paleo diet or intermittent fasting or gluten-free. You have these communities that are built on social media where misinformation just thrives. The other thing that's going on, I, I think a lot of, of the misinformation plays to our negativity bias, like it's fear-mongering, right? And, and um, so that you know, non-GMO is a really good example of it. And we know good research tells us, good research tells us that that really can make a difference because we're going to remember that stuff. It sounds scary. And the last thing I'll point out, I think pop culture and the wellness industry, you know, the wellness industry has become a multi-trillion dollar industry and they've got to have stuff to sell, you know, whether they're selling a product or whether they're selling a story or whether they're selling a fear just to build their brand. And the wellness industry is really a relatively new phenomenon, you know, over the last decade or so that has really captured how we think about health, how we think about what we eat, how we think about a healthy lifestyle. And I think by and large, it has really just added noise and confusion to the public discussion. So what are a few points that people who are listening right now could look for to spot some of this misinformation and and what can they do to get to the bottom of where they should find the truth if they're concerned about, say, one food over another food? Well, you know, I think, first of all, ask yourself, you know, who's telling you this? <laughs> you know, is this, is this person selling a product? Are they selling a brand? Are they selling an ideology? You know, ask yourself that, right? And that makes a difference. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. You know, your spidey sense right. should be tingling. Secondly, ask yourself, what kind of evidence is being used here? You know, is... Is this just an anecdote? Is this just an observational study? You know, so much in the food space is just an observational study. And I think this is so important to a complex topic like nutrition and food. What does the body of evidence say about this topic? What does the existing body of evidence say? So if the advice goes counter to the existing body of evidence, you know, only eat blue food, <laughs> you know, uh, ask yourself what kind of evidence does this really make is the evidence enough to pull me away from the body of evidence I, I think that that that's really really important so just those two things that can make can make a big difference you know who's who's telling me this and what kind of evidence are they using to support their claim and i think uh, the idea of taking that extra moment and have a critical thought about some of these different products i, I think would work for all of us I'm even to blame on some things that I, I'm not familiar with, right? You kind of second guess your food choices when you're at the grocery store. Really, like you said, is to look at some of that stuff and be a little bit more critical of some of the information you see, right? That's right. There's this really interesting body of evidence that's emerging about pausing and just thinking about accuracy. Gordon Pennycook is a, an experimental psychologist I, I collaborate with, and he's done fascinating research with David Rand from MIT that has found that just pausing just pausing for a moment and making accuracy kind of your norm is enough to reduce your belief in misinformation and make it less likely that you're going to share misinformation. And it's just because our information environment is so chaotic. We just see headlines, right, about GMOs and coffee and gluten. And, and just pausing for a minute and asking yourself, how accurate is this? That will make a difference on, on the degree to which you accept misinformation and share misinformation. 
Again, that's uh, Timothy Caulfield. He's a University of Alberta law professor and the current Canada Research Chair in Health, Law and Policy. He spoke with Clinton Monchuk, Executive Director of Farm and Food Care Saskatchewan. It's time now for the Beef and Forage Report, and it's a presentation of Priestville Salvage. See them for new and used egg parts. Five. Beef and Forage Report. For forage growers, Canada thistle is one of their worst enemies. It causes an estimated $7.5 billion in lost revenue annually for the Canadian agricultural and forestry sectors. Canada thistle is especially damaging in drought years. To find out more about the weed and how to best control it, I spoke with Mark Burslies, specialties business leader with Corteva AgriScience. I would say Canada thistle is the number one pervasive, invasive weed. Uh, definitely in Western Canada, and it's it's moving its way across the country here. So, first place says Canada thistle can spread very quickly due to the fact that it doesn't just reproduce via seed; it reproduces via nodes in the root system as well. And so, um, you've got one little plant that pops up, and it's usually indicative of a, a substantially larger problem with a large biomass under the ground. And so, its its ability to spread is is unbelievable. If unchecked, Canada thistle will rob forage yield and producer profitability. It's like a lot of other weeds where it's stealing the moisture and the nutrients uh, for the crop that it surrounds and so, or that surrounds it. Um, and in this case, which would be forage, so that the, the native and tame grasses that are in the pasture. Firstly, says with proper management practices, producers can significantly impact the establishment, growth, and spread of Canada thistle. It can be controlled, absolutely it can, um, but because it, it spreads so quickly and, and the largest part of the, the plant system is underground and people don't see it, that uh, sometimes you, you think that you've got the problem in hand and you really don't. Perslice says if you have a situation where Canada thistle has become pervasive on pasture land, the best control option is a herbicide. We have a portfolio of herbicides that, that you can use to control it. All of our three majors will, will get it, uh, depending on the time of year um, and also the pervasiveness of the plant. And so uh, what you want to do is, um, is to use the herbicide when the plant is actively growing um, so for Canada, but you want to make sure again, do that massive root system underneath um, that you've got the majority of plants that are going to emerge that year or have emerged that year and are entering that actively growing stage. Uh, usually for, for this area of the world, um, we're thinking second half of, of uh, July into the end of July is a really good time to do that. The plants, like I say, are actively growing and most of them have already uh, emerged. Um, but you want to make sure that you're not into the into the bud or even pre-bud stage on the plant because once it starts thinking about reproduction, that's its focus and you no longer get the good translocation through the plant that you would when it's not. Um, you can then go after fluff as well uh, and get really good control on it. And if you want to wait until later in the year, um, if everything was just perfect and you hold your tongue just right, um, if you've got a really good frost the night before, any time after that, within three to four days, when the plant realizes that, oh my goodness, um, winter is coming, and they start running all of the resources down to the root zone, it's an opportunity to get that big biomass as well. 
Personalized stresses, though, that a herbicide application isn't a silver bullet. It would be part of your integrated pasture management program. It's a really great place to start, um, and it'll get your field in a position to be successful down the road as you utilize other uh, strong management practices like uh, rotational grazing and, and that sort of thing, regenerative ag, the whole the whole new catchphrase for what's going on this year. So it, it's not a one and done, it's, it's, but it is a very important part of the solution. Mark Verslies is a specialty business leader with Corteva AgriScience. He also has a farm in southern Alberta. And that is today's Beef and Forage Reports, a little after 12.30 now, 1.30 in Manitoba, and time for AgReview. It's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. X94, AgReview. USDA released both the August crop production and world agricultural supply and demand estimates reports today. As expected, USDA lowered its estimates for both corn and soybean yields and production. USDA also lowered its estimate for U.S. wheat production. Wheat farm gate prices were left unchanged at $7.50 a bushel. DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman says USDA's New crop U.S. ending stocks estimates were roughly neutral for corn, soybeans, and wheat. He says world ending stocks estimates from USDA were a little bullish for corn and neutral for soybeans and wheat. We'll get some reaction to the WASD and August crop production reports when we hear from Adam Puckalo from PI Financial coming up just a little later on in the program today. Ukraine announced a humanitarian corridor in the Black Sea yesterday to release cargo ships trapped in its ports since the outbreak of the war and a new test of Russia's de facto blockade since Moscow abandoned a deal last month to let Kiev export grain. At least initially, the corridor would apply to vessels such as container ships that have been stuck in Ukrainian ports since the invasion back in February of last year and were not covered by the deal that opened the ports for grain shipments last year. The move is seen as a major test of Ukraine's ability to reopen sea lanes at a time when Russia is trying to reimpose its blockade, having abandoned the grain deal last month. The United Nations has said Russia's decision to quit the deal risks worsening a global food crisis, hurting poor countries the worst by keeping grain from one of the world's biggest exporters off the market. Moscow says it will return to the grain deal only if it receives better terms for its own exports of food and fertilizer. Floods have damaged corn and rice crops in China's key northern grain-producing belt. Traders and analysts say with more rain in the forecast as another typhoon approaches, it threatens to add to global food inflation pressures, the hit to China's cereal crops. The full extent of which is not yet clear comes as consumers worldwide face tightening food supplies amid India's ban on rice exports last month and the disruptions in Black Sea grain shipments caused by the war in Ukraine. G3 is celebrating the grand opening of its newest high-efficiency grain elevator in Saskatchewan, G3 Melfort. The facility on the CN rail line has a capacity of 42,000 metric tons. 
unloads Super B trucks in less than five minutes, and loads 150-car trains on its loop track in a matter of hours. G3 Vice President of Operations Don McDonald says they're excited to show farmers in the Melford area how G3 can save them time and money with their state-of-the-art systems and commitment to customer service. Construction on the new grain elevator began in late 2021. The facility was just recently completed and has already received its first loads of grain from area producers and loaded its first train. G3 is already active in the community in supporting local projects, including a major sponsorship of the Melfort Curling Rink's revitalization project. And self-propelled combine sales continued to increase in the U.S., while total farm tractor unit sales in the U.S. and Canada declined in July. That's according to the latest data from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Overall unit sales of U.S. combines climbed 10.6 percent compared to July last year, while sales of tractors declined 5.2 percent in the same month in 2022, largely driven by softness in the smaller horsepower segment. Canadian tractors saw slower July sales with an overall decline approaching 20%, with combines declining 16% year-over-year for the month of July. And that is today's Ag Review. It's uh, coming up on 1239 now, 139 in Manitoba. And we'll check the closing livestock futures coming up next. Livestock market conditions. Cattle futures were down at the close today. October live cattle 181.32 down a dollar 20. December live cattle closed at 185.45 down a dollar 15. September feeder cattle 251.45 down 12 cents. October feeder cattle closed today at 252.87 down 45 cents. October lean hogs 81.32 up a dollar and December lean hogs 74.50 up 72 cents. And those are today's closing U.S. livestock futures. We'll check the closing grain prices coming up in about 10 minutes from now at 10 to 1, 10 to 2 in Manitoba. Future Ford has been serving the Melville area for over 30 years. They focus on the future. Their staff are ready for what's to come. Ford Tech is changing all the time with new vehicle technology like EV, self-driving, and more. Get ready to drive into the future. Why? Because the future is Future Ford. Welcome back to SaskAg Today. I'm Rod McDonald. The Canadian Cattle Association will present its 26th Environmental Stewardship Award, known as TESA, next week in Calgary. Seven nominees have been selected from across the country. These producers use innovative methods to protect, preserve, and enhance their operations and the environment simultaneously. Werner Stump is with Crystal Lake Ranch in British Columbia. Stump is a proponent of precision agriculture. We're using some high-tech tools like drone and some high-tech imagery to help us understand things about the crop and about the soil and making applications of uh, nutrients and biologicals that can enhance the productivity of the soil. The Alberta nominee is the Ray Ranch at Uricana which has converted 1,000 acres of cropland into high-legume perennial pasture divided into 20-acre paddocks. 
They practice year-round grazing, closely monitoring soil organic matter and other metrics. If we understand and unleash the natural processes that are in the soil and between the plant and the soil and, the, and our livestock, that we can uh, create a healthier environment and grow healthier food in the process. So, you know, when you realize that plants invest 30% of the energy they take from the sun and put it out through their roots into the soil, plants grow soil, soil doesn't grow plants. So that kind of message that we're using natural processes to grow healthy food for ourselves and our city cousins Brian and Debbie Hysaw of Clearview Angus at Mancota are the Saskatchewan nominees for the Tessa Award. They actively manage over 6,000 acres of native grassland near Grasslands National Park. Clearview Angus is involved in the conservation agreement to enhance habitat and species recovery. The Manitoba nominee is Lowry Farms near Darlington in the Pembina Valley region. Glenn Lowry uses a vigorous rotational grazing system to improve soil fertility and increased forage production. He says there are many environmental benefits. From uh, carbon sequestration, which we all produce, we're taking that, putting it back into the grassland where it belongs. Better grassland absorbs more water. So we're holding more water, which reduces runoff, reduces nutrient runoff. We use that water in turn to solar power really water our cattle and put the it, it's a self-sustaining system there are also three tessa nominees from eastern canada from ontario quebec and prince edward island it's 12:45 now 1:45 in manitoba now with manitoba agriculture entomologist dr john gavlowski of course, we had a nice steady rain through the Yorkton, Melville area yesterday, John. So how does rain affect insect pests? Well, it depends on the insect and depends on the intensity of the rain. Uh, one of the insects that we've been dealing with a little in Manitoba is aphids. And in some crops, a heavy rain will actually uh, knock a lot of the aphids off the crops. And uh, sometimes it can really knock the populations back. So... Uh, a heavier rain can have that uh, good effect to it. Also, spider mites. Um, we've had some issues more in the eastern part of Manitoba, but um, spider mites as well, they can uh, be reduced by rain. And also, if you get a period of heavier humidity after some of the rains, uh, that can help promote uh, disease in some of the insects, such as aphids and spider mites as well. But things like grasshoppers at this time of year, uh, they're moving into the adult stages and um, the rain will slow them down for the days when it's raining um, but then they'll resume feeding um, if it's humid again for a long enough period there is a fungal pathogen that sometimes we end up seeing in the grasshoppers as well and it's very noticeable because when they are um, infected with it they climb to the top of the plants and end up dying at the top of the plants but that infection often kicks in earlier in the season, and um, it's this time of year when we start to see the effects of it. In this week's crop pest update, you talk about natural enemies of aphids. So what we put together was um, kind of a photo collage of nine different pictures 
showing some uh, natural enemies of aphids, so predators that, that like to eat aphids. Um, of course, lady beetles are in there, but I didn't put a picture of the adult lady beetle because everyone knows what an adult lady beetle looks like. What we focused on was a couple different species of the larva. The larva of lady beetles are somewhat alligator-shaped. They're um, tiny, but uh, alligator-shaped, um, often black with either orange or sometimes an orange and white patterning to them, and like I said, this alligatory shape to them. And also the pupa we often see on the wheat heads or soybean leaves or whatever crop they're, they've been feeding in. So I put a picture of the pupa stage as well. I've had people confuse those with lady beetle larva. So, oh, sorry, uh, with potato beetle larva. So um, good to know what they look like as well. Another one that we focused on was hoverflies. And so hoverflies as adults are very good being wasp mimics. They will hover like a helicopter and look very much wasp or bee-like. Um, their larvae, uh, for many species, their larvae feed on mainly just aphids. And they look like legless slugs. They're very much slug-like in appearance, but they don't feed on plants like slugs. They feed on aphids. And there's lots of different species of hoverflies. There's over 500 species in Canada. So uh, the larvae can be green. They can be brown, almost a... Uh, pinkish tinge to them and and like I said somewhat slug-like and a few others that we uh, put pictures in are lacewing larvae and lacewing larvae are also somewhat alligator shaped in appearance so if there is if it's a little black and uh, orangish alligator it's probably lady beetle but if it's brown and white it could be a lacewing larva they're very good aphid predators as well and their adult stage is green with lacy wings, hence lace wings, and uh, some, some species do feed on aphids as adults as well. And the last two we put in are different types of true bugs that feed on aphids. One's called the damsel bug, brown, usually very sleek looking, very slim. Um, they will puncture aphids with their beak, inject a toxin, and then suck the juice out of the aphid. And the uh, final one we put in was minute pirate bug, tiny, hence minute, black and white, and uh, they run around feeding on aphids as well. Now that's just scratching the surface too. There's a lot more we could have covered, but those are some of the common ones that people are likely to see more of when they're out scouting their fields. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And Gavlosky says every insect pest has natural enemies. Any insect pest is going to have some predators that feed on it, predaceous insects, as well as birds and sometimes mammals and things as well. And there's always another group called the parasitoids, and these are insects that like to lay eggs either in them or on them, and the larvae of the parasitoids will consume the, the insects. And uh, every insect uh, who's a, that's a crop pest is going to have their suite of parasitoids and predators that like to feed on them. In a controlled indoor environment, like a greenhouse, growers can introduce those beneficial insects into the operation. That doesn't work for outdoor purposes, though. Lady beetles, lace wings, pirate bugs, you, you can buy a lot of different things to use in a greenhouse setting or indoor environment. Outdoor is tricky to do because you're talking with such a large scale. And uh, the reality is, if there's a lot of food uh, for the natural enemy, 
they're going to hang around and feed on it. If not, they're going to move somewhere else. Whereas in a greenhouse situation, they're captive. They're going to wait around until the aphids get to levels where they can easily find them. Um, so outdoors is a bit trickier. This week's crop pest update from Manitoba Agriculture also includes an update on Bertha armyworms. For the most part, things stayed in the lower risk category. Uh, the only trap that moved into what we call the uncertain risk category was a trap in the southwest uh, near Waskeda. Uh, other than that, everything rated as lower risk. Now, we did have a, uh, an area um, in around uh, Baldur Cypress River where uh, a few fields did have higher levels of anywhere larvae and were treated. So there has been a little bit of issues with Bertha armyworm, but again, kind of localized. Um, that, uh, the hotspot seems to be that Baldur Cypress River area. Uh, so far in the northwest area, haven't heard of any reports of high levels of Bertha armyworm larvae, though. And finally, Manitoba Agriculture is conducting a grasshopper survey. We've got uh, um, quite a few people out doing the survey right now. Um, results are still coming in, so it'll be a little bit uh, premature to talk about results. Um, we're also keeping an eye on our dominant species this year. Um, in the past several years, uh, two-striped grasshopper has been the dominant species. Um, but just um, preliminary uh, data, we are seeing a, a bit, I guess, greater variety this year, maybe a little bit more of migratory clear-winged and, and, maybe, and even some packards. So uh, with the survey, we look at numbers of grasshoppers, plus for people who are comfortable doing it, the dominant species in an area. And this is something that if a farmer or agronomist in the area wanted to contribute towards, they can. It's a pretty simple procedure. You walk along uh, field edge or a ditch, you uh, do a few estimates of grasshopper density, and you write it down and send that data in. And if anyone's interested in helping out with that, they can contact me or go to um, this week's Manitoba Crop Pest Update, and there's a link in there taking you to the protocol on how that's all done. Gavlosky explains why they do a grasshopper survey. So what we do is we take the results and we map them and what the map will show is what we counted in august so where the higher densities were in august and that's your egg laying population that's out there and with that i try to factor in some weather data and make a make predictions based on where potential hot spots could be the next season dr john gavlosky is manitoba agriculture's chief entomologist Commodities Update. Now here are today's closing commodity prices. November canola 761.90. That was down 11.30 at the close today. January canola closed at 767.70, down 10.90. September Minneapolis wheat 815 a bushel, down two cents. September Kansas City wheat 755 and three quarters, down 11 and a quarter. September Chicago wheat, 626 and three quarters, down 11 cents. September corn, 474 and a half, down eight and three quarters. September soybeans closed today at 1337 and a quarter, down 14 and three quarters. And September oats, 419 a bushel, up three and a quarter cents. And those are today's closing grain prices. 
And finally today on SaskAg Today, canola and wheat futures have had a rough ride again this week. Commodity Futures Advisor with PI Financial, Adam Puckalo, says the ICE Futures canola contract for November was down about $25 a ton this week. The Minneapolis wheat contract for September was also down about 13 cents a bushel this week. With more, again, this is Adam Puckalo. So today there was a USDA report, and uh, that is driving the markets here. Uh, as we're talking right now, soybeans are up uh, about four cents a bushel as uh, the production in the U.S. did come uh, a little bit below estimates uh, with yields at about 50.9 bushels an acre. Uh, the trade average is about 51.3. On the corn side, uh, a little bit below expectations as well, too, on production and yield. So uh, seeing both those markets up uh, up in the green a little bit here today, um, the U.S. did peg uh, corn supplies above analyst expectations, but new crop soybeans were below. So USDA reduced old and new crop exports, uh, Just and seeing that kind of affecting the markets a little bit today. On the U.S. wheat production, it came in very close to expectations uh, and close to last month's estimates, uh, but spring wheat output came in well below all trade estimates. Uh, however, with the winter wheat slightly topping its range of expectations. So again, today, traders were kind of watching the USDA report and see how, how that's affected the markets. Overall, I would say not a huge mover kind of right now with now all the grains not in the double digits kind of mark. So that's, I would say, what traders are going to be watching for kind of over kind of the next few days to see what that brings about for the market. Again, that's Adam Puckalo, Commodity Futures Advisor with PI Financial in Regina. Well, that's it for this edition of Sask Ag Today. I'm Rod McDonald. Doug Faulkner will be back in here on Monday afternoon, and I'll look forward to coming back and chatting with you again, hopefully again next year. Sask Ag Today has been brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Future Ford is your automotive expert. From sales to service, they're the ones you can trust to get you rolling again sooner.